Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Carly Dober and we would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, upon whose land we are broadcasting here at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row in Sydney. On the Climate Action Show, we talk about what's hot and what's not with climate change. Please share the show if you like what you hear, and remember there can be no climate justice without First Nations justice. Recently, I attended from the University of Sydney a discussion forum titled A Flood of Emotions, Climate Anxiety and Trauma in Australia. In the aftermath of a devastating climate disasters like we've had the recent East Coast floods and the bushfires, how do communities and those at the centre of the crises and those on the periphery support each other emotionally during times of climate distress? I thought this was a fantastic exploration of community from those on the front lines and activists and academics. And we also hear from climate emotion experts and residents of Lismore. The University of Sydney brought together the latest research and on the ground perspectives about how we collectively grapple with the emotional impacts and long emergency of the climate crisis. I hope you enjoy. Well, good evening. Thank you very much for joining us here at Sydney Ideas. My name is Fenella Kernaba and I'm Head of Programming for Sydney Ideas and it's uh, so wonderful to have you join us for our event tonight, A Flood of Emotions, Climate Anxiety and Trauma in Australia. Before we continue, I would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional custodians of the lands on which we all meet, uh, where we work and where we share our ideas. So wherever you happen to be here today and joining us online, um, thank you for joining us. I also wanted to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's on their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney's built. And, and as we share our, our knowledge and our teaching and our learning, uh, as well as our research practices within the university, we also pay our respects to the knowledge that is embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. Again, welcome to you to tonight's Sydney Ideas event. To join the conversation on socials, you can use at Sydney Ideas, hashtag Sydney Ideas. And if you would like to ask a question, we would love to hear from you too. You can go to slido.com, S-L-I-D-O.com. And again, just use that code, Sydney Ideas. And we'll go to some Q&A a bit later on. Now it's my pleasure to introduce you to your moderator tonight. Uh, Blanche Verley is a multidisciplinary social scientist and her work focuses on climate change. She's a member of the Sydney Environment Institute and her research looks into how people understand, experience and respond to climate change and how we might do things differently and better. So thank you very much again for joining us and thank you Blanche, over to you. Thanks so much Fenella. And thanks everyone for joining us here at the Sydney Ideas event tonight. My name is Blanche Burley and I'm so thrilled to be here chairing this event with our incredible panel of speakers. I'm calling in from the stolen and unceded country of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and I would like to pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present for their continuing care for country. Here on Gadigal country, we've had a week of relatively sunny weather, which has been a very welcome reprieve from what has seemed like months of endless rain. Where I am, everything is mouldy, the parks are still sodden and stink of mud, and our world famous beaches have been eroded and are still polluted from the runoff 
from the toxic city we settlers have built. I say this to emphasize that you don't need to be in a disaster zone or to be a First Nations person to see the impacts climate change is having on country all around us. These impacts call on us to be more responsive and accountable. The idea for tonight's event started in that spirit, wanting to pay witness to what is happening around us. In particular, our hopes for this evening's event are to pay attention to the human impacts of climate change. Climate change is often framed as an issue of emissions, energy systems and markets, but it's also an intensely personal and emotional issue and one that affects different people in different ways and in unfair ways. Australia is one of those unique places where we're both big carbon polluters, but also highly vulnerable to climate change. White Australia loves to idealise this sunburnt country of droughts and flooding rains, but this already highly variable and challenging climate has now warmed on average 1.4 degrees since pre-industrial times, higher than the global average of 1.1 degree. Throughout the latter half of 2019 and 2020, Australia caught the world's attention thanks to an absolutely horrific fire season. I want to acknowledge that the impacts of those fires are still unfolding, that many communities have not fully recovered, and that our national response was and still is inadequate. This year, in the midst of an ongoing pandemic, the east coast of Australia has been pounded by relentless rain. The soils are sodden, the rivers and dams full, and when the big storms have come, the waters had nowhere left to go. Tonight, we will hear from four speakers from the Northern Rivers of New South Wales, where on the 28th of February, the rapidly rising floodwaters peaked at over 14 metres in Lismore. This resilient community that was very familiar with flooding was nevertheless unprepared for the incredible speed and height of those waters. Just a month later, while people were still flat out trying to clean up, another huge flood swept through. A few weeks on and we find ourselves in the midst of an election campaign that seems to have no memory of these events. Yet if there is one thing that the growing research on climate disasters and mental health tells us, it's that denying and ignoring people's lived realities is a surefire way to actively compound trauma. So we, we are here tonight not to talk about climate change as though it is some abstract issue far away, but to talk with people who are living in climate change worlds about their and their community's experiences. Through helping to organize this panel tonight, I've become aware of the vast networks of people who are working alongside each other on these issues. And we'll also be focusing our conversation on the community relationships that contribute to climate resilience. One quick thing before we get going. Evidently, the topic of tonight's conversation will touch on some potentially distressing events. If you need further support, we've put some links in the chat that may be useful. And a reminder that we'll be taking questions for our panelists on Slido, so you can follow the link in the chat to ask a question. Now I'm going to invite our fabulous speakers to turn on their cameras and I'll briefly introduce them. Sam Savage is a traditional owner of the Bindle Nation in Townsville. His ancestry is both Aboriginal from the Birigubba Nation and Torres Strait Islander from Malwara Island. Sam's current role is Northern Queensland Emergency Services Regional Coordinator at the Australian Red Cross. Maddie Braddon is a Lismore resident and community leader whose work focuses on climate justice and building community resilience. 
Jeanti St. Clair lives in Lismore and is a lecturer at Southern Cross University there, where she teaches media and journalism. James Bennett Levy has lived in Northern New South Wales for 30 years and is a professor of mental health and psychological wellbeing at the University of Sydney's University Centre for Rural Health, based in Lismore. And Aidan Ricketts was directly impacted by the recent mega flood event in North Lismore and also participated in a civilian rescue at the peak of the emergency. We're really thrilled to have Aidan here tonight as uh, we weren't sure if he'd be able to make it. So welcome everyone and thank you so much for being here with us tonight. Aidan, I'd like to start with you. You're a long-term resident of Lismore and during the recent floods, you had to evacuate your home and you also helped rescue a number of people. Can you share, can you share your story with us and tell us a bit about what the situation on the ground is like there now? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I think to put it in context, as you said, Lismore is used to flooding. Um, the town's sort of predicated on this historic, you know, record uh, of, you know, what we a planning standard called the one and 100, which, you know, in raw figures is 12.6. So, uh, and I think what a lot of people don't understand, it's not just residents, it was the big corporates, the government offices, everything that were relying on that standard. Um, this flood came in at two to two and a half metres above that. Now, um, you know, I know myself, my house sits at 13.3, 800, you know, 800 above that. Um, you know, and even taking climate change into account, really, in my thinking, it was like, oh, well, we probably are going to ex exceed the 1 in 100 at some point. Um, you know, it might come half a metre above that, in which case a lot of places would still have been okay. But it came, where I am, it came two and a half metres above that. It came to 15 metres here in North Lismore. Um, and that's what the real shock was. You know, places that were, you know, traditionally safely above it, suddenly not only were inundated, but inundated up, you know, to two and a half metres, which is life-threatening. So, you know, that led to, a, I mean, it led to a breakdown of the warning systems because it was beyond the, the warning systems in place, the ones the bomb uses, ended up breaking the gauge in the end. Uh, and so, I mean, how my day started was, well, long before light. Um, first of all, having my daughter, Kudra, had to help get the boat out from under the house um, where we'd put it to stop it filling with rain, um, to stop it actually getting jammed up under the floor. Uh, and that was still in the darkness. And then still in the darkness, my neighbours started calling out to me for help. And then we just had to wait for first light before, you know, I could go out in the boat, collect those neighbours, collect a, an old lady um, nearby who I'd been asked to help. And the moment we were on the water and this, the light was coming, basically there was people on every roof we went past. It was, um, yeah, it was a, and, and people being pulled out of roofs I and mean, we actually helped some people who were in their ceiling and were ankle grinding their way out. So it was, um, yeah, it was a, you know, absolutely extreme event that, uh, you know, we couldn't have predicted would come so soon. Yeah, thank you so much, Eden, for sharing your story. Um, I'm aware that, uh, you know, these events are still fairly recent for you. Um, is there any, and, and I know that you uh, need to hop off in a minute because you've obviously got a lot on your plate. Is there anything else that you wanted to share with people tonight? Oh, look, I think, I mean, you know, my understanding of it is, 
you know, in many ways, there's, you know, there's a lot of focus upon the peak event. There's a lot of media, a lot of governmental focus. And even for those of us within it, I mean, everyone has a different experience. But certainly my experience has been that, um, you know, I've, I've, I cope much better with the, with the peak experience, uh, the adrenaline and all of that, than the aftermath. The aftermath goes on and on and on. Um, and it's ultimately very disempowering for you know people caught up in it. And in this case, as you've mentioned, we had the second flood, which really um, did less in the way of property damage and a lot more in the way of psychological damage because it really it really interrupted uh, perhaps you know neat neat sort of trajectories people were believing in that you know that there's a traumatic event and then there's a recovery. Um, you know, one follows the other, and instead we've found ourselves living with the prospect of just pulsing, pulsing flooding throughout the season. So, uh, and I think that's affected a lot of people. I know myself. We, you know, we'd, we'd moved back into the house, made it very, very sweet. We were, you know, empowered in a way about how resilient our house had been and how resilient we were, and it was going all well. And then when the second one came, we had to put everything up again. We still haven't brought it down um, because it just you know, we're just living minimally sort of going, well, we're going to wait until winter or something. Uh, and that's certainly my experience is, is, is exhaustion. I mean, uh, I, I was just saying to a friend today, you know, like I'm experiencing, you know, incredible exhaustion after all these months, um, you know, a sense, you know, a sense of the rest of the world moving on and <clears throat> this trauma becoming our own private business just for those who are in it and affected. And also you mentioned mental health. It's the sort of idea that, I don't know, sometimes we talk about things like, depression or anxiety as if they're an aberration that we have to fix whereas to some extent in a situation like this there are just a totally appropriate response to what people are going through you know people aren't suffering from a condition because they're depressed or disempowered or exhausted or anxious um, that's actually a response to you know to a very real situation so yeah that's the main thing I've got to say really is that the the aftermath is the aftermath is the grueling grind that just goes on and on and on. Um, and I think, you know, finally, just one thing that I, I find a little bit bizarre is, is the way the sort of the ideology of safety gets imposed in a disaster zone. And a lot of government services or corporate services get withdrawn um, because of this sense that it isn't safe to be in there, uh, which is incredibly disabling and disempowering for the people who are in there trying to recover and trying to get back in their homes um, and I, I sort of have this 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 sense that there's a very great disconnect between having a, a pristine standard of safety which we tend to try to apply in Australia and then to apply that to a climate catastrophe um, it, it seems odd to me that on the one hand we can be applying the world's finest WH and S standards and on the other hand, we can be walking blindfolded into, you know, the most dangerous possible future, you know, not just for, you know, and, and it isn't just Lismore. I mean, it's Lismore today. It's droughts out west next time. It's coastal erosion. It's fires. It's, um, you know, and, and I think in terms of climate grief, you know, we're all experiencing personal grief, collective grief. But when you drill down into it, you realise that ultimately it's climate grief that our homes are threatened, but really our big home is threatened and that's our planet. Yeah, thank you so much, Aidan. Um, there's so much wisdom there that you've shared with us in such a short amount of time there. So thank you so much. And I know I'll be thinking about your thoughts around safety for quite a bit. Uh, so thank you. And 
yeah, just a huge thanks again for making this happen tonight. We really appreciate it. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, and obviously we all wish you the best with, you know, the recovery from this event. Thank you. Uh, Jonti, I'm going to go yeah. to you next. Uh, so, oh, hi. <laughs> hey, uh, you created the Lismore Flood Stories audio walk project. Uh, originally to document the 2017 floods that happened in Lismore, but in light of current events, this is now evolving into a portal for all Lismore flood documentation projects so that we can better understand the impact of climate disasters on regional communities. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. I mean, right after the floods, I had people saying to me, time for more flood stories. And it was devastating to think about the, the, the magnitude of the impact from this particular flood. Um, it was trying to capture our history of experience of being in a flooding event. Is is it's a really important role to play as a story catcher, if you like, in a community. And there are many people that are now working in that way who will be helping to bring these stories to light. And it's a it's a really story sharing is a really cathartic experience for most people when they've experienced a climate disaster or any disaster. It's a really positive way to process your trauma and your grief, uh, the difficult emotions, the anxiety and the angry uh, anger that comes from it as well. And it's been interesting to witness how story sharing has been happening after this flood this time and the important way that social media has been able to catch people's stories. There was a uh, a lot of spontaneous story sharing in the first weeks after the first flood on the 28th where people were sharing their very traumatic stories about being rescued. And now there's stories that are emerging about this long haul of recovery, the sort of ups and downs uh, that, that um, Aidan was talking about. So I think it's really important that we are able to hear these stories and carry them for the community. It's, it's so important to be seen and heard by your community and the opportunities to acknowledge that we share these experiences is really important. And when I did the, the project for the 2017 flood, I collected stories from people who uh, had been impacted by the flood and people who helped in the cleanup. Um, in fact, Maddie on the panel here was one of the storytellers and I'm sure she might have something to say about the value of that experience um, when she speaks. Uh, We've actually got those excerpts that we, we could, I've put together a little package of excerpts from the 2017 flood to give perhaps an example about what that story sharing experience was. A lot of people who participated in that said that they hadn't properly processed the grief yet. One of our storytellers said that she hadn't actually cried until she listened back to her own story. And that was three years later uh, that she told and then reheard that story. So perhaps we can listen to the excerpts and then I'll just have one more thing that I'd like to share. Myself and, and my crew, uh, three other firefighters, we all got in the truck and we drove down the Bruxner Highway at 20 to 4, quarter to 4 in the morning. That night when I got really scared was, was in the middle of the night, so it was really dark, and I could hear the water rushing and I could hear how high it was. That was my fear, was that the water would actually push the house off its metal poles. There was a lot of trepidation because... We realised that it, you know, it was potentially a dangerous situation we were going down to. Because I think now that that would have killed us. I don't think there's a way out of that. I tried to do things like roll up towels and rugs and blankets and put them around the doors. 
but the first sound that I heard was this bubbling and the water came up through all the drains in the bathroom. Then it started to flood in around the skirting boards, all around the walls, around the house. So the crew went and did a final sweep through the station. We all gathered again in the watch room and from there I pressed the button for the siren for three minutes. The coffee tables, chairs and the beds were the first things to start floating. You watch all those movies over the years of London in the Blitz or whatever like that and you hear that siren going. That's exactly the siren we've got on the fire station. So I won't stay again in a flood that big. And that was Ian Grimwood, who was the fire um, commander for his uh, his um, shift, who rang that siren. And then there was Megan Bowes, who lived in North Lismore in a very high set house. And also Emily Rouse, who lived right in the middle of the Lismore Basin and um, watched the river come closer and closer and finally flood her house, which she was in with her three-year-old son. So... This was part of an installation of audio walks that was based from the Lismore Quad. And last year, people would go out wearing raincoats and gumboots and listening to these stories, following a route that the audio stories directed them along. And one thing I just wanted to say about that installation was that last year, people would come back from doing a walk and they would tell me either their flood story that they wanted to share, or they'd say that a random person had come up to them in the street and said, what are you doing? And when they said they were doing a flood walk, they wanted to tell them about their stories and they wanted to talk about flood preparedness and they wanted to talk about community resilience. And so I think what that brings up is that it's really important that we keep these conversations going and that we support the community to continue to share the stories about these experiences. This is important knowledge and we need to keep it safe. Thank you so much, Shanti. That um, is so fascinating hearing uh, both, you know, it's kind of heart-wrenching to hear those stories from 2017 mm. and to think about, um, you know, the the impact that your work has had um, on the community and how that's supporting people is uh, really, um, really inspiring. So thank you for doing all that work and thank you for sharing it with us tonight. Yeah, thank you. Uh, James, I'm going to ask you a question next. Uh, so, James, you led a study into the mental health impacts of the 2017 floods in northern New South Wales. Uh, so can you tell us about the findings of that research and how it can inform our understandings of what's happening now in 2022? Uh, so, for example, what's similar and what's different to the 2017 situation? Sure, sure, thank you. And just picking up on what Aidan was saying about the aftermath, all the, the television cameras are very much sort of on the flood when it happens at the time, but actually floods are all about the aftermath and it's all about the years after. And so, yes, we, we did a study, um, survey study um, of the 2017 floods uh, at six months post-flood and again at two years post-flood. And um, I think the findings are incredibly relevant, obviously, um, and probably the first place in the world that's actually done a study of a flood-affected community that's then been flooded again. Um, it's not a great thing to have done, but, you know, it's, it's what's happened. So, in a nutshell, um, people who were displaced from home for more than six months had a particularly 
were particularly impacted in terms of mental health. Um, and obviously that's incredibly relevant for now where we've got something like, and we still don't have the figures, but it might be something like 20,000 people that have actually been made homeless. And some of those will inevitably be long-term and probably some thousands. Um, the, the experience of the flood at the time, if you, had a, if you felt you were gonna be badly injured or feared for your life or were terrified, feeling helpless or hopeless, you had a very high chance of having mental health impacts and particularly PTSD um, down the track. What we've had in this flood is, is really horrifying experiences um, uh, at a hugely greater scale than happened in 2017. Um, People were completely overwhelmed, as Aidan was saying, of people on roofs and in, in roof spaces and crying out for help. And, you know, it was awful, awful scenario. Um, what we also found in 2017 was, you know, the more you were impacted, um, again, the, the greater your, your mental health um, issues down the track. So... So for instance, if non-livable areas of your home were affected, um, that wasn't so bad, it wasn't great, but it wasn't so bad. But once it got to livable areas, once it got to your business or, or, or workplace, um, then again, you're at much higher risk for um, mental health um, problems. On the upside, what's, what's protective factor is, is social connection. Um, so social capital, incredibly important. Um, and um, another thing I think is um, obviously very relevant is that what happens uh, in floodplains, of course, is that cheaper housing and so marginalised communities are disproportionately affected. Uh, and again, we found that, um, that something like 80% um, of the people who are flood affected in 2017 were actually in the, in the lowest 20% of, in terms of socioeconomic indicators. Um, and so particularly, you know, Aboriginal community affected, particularly people on low incomes, um, people on disability support, for instance. Um, so, so um, yeah, so those were some of the effects. And one, one other thing I would say is we also found that people who were indirectly disrupted also had a higher incidence of, of mental health problems. And that means, for instance, being cut off from social services and, and now what's happened in this flood is, is, is the indirect impact has been universal right across the Northern Rivers. Um, so, you know, many people didn't have internet for days. People didn't even have triple zero for heaven's sake. Um, um, you know, th there were all kinds of, uh, you know, people were cut off for days. I mean, for days, for weeks in some cases. Um, so, you know, we're not just talking Lismore here, we're talking um, rural communities that lost their roads completely, um, that landslips, um, that, um, that left some houses actually sliding down landslips, others with huge great caverns under, underneath them. Um, so we have a very, very different scenario this time and, um, you know, a, a hugely greater community, right across community.
Yeah, thank you so much, James. That research is uh, so important and I think uh, also gives us insight into, you know, really important but also achievable things that could be done in the aftermath um, and also, you know, to prevent these kinds of things being as bad as they can get. Um, so thank you for doing that research. And it also helps highlight, you know, this idea of climate justice that some people are affected worse than others and that tends to fall along the lines of existing forms of uh, social inequality. So thank you so much for doing that research. Um, Sam, I'm going to uh, throw to you next. So in your current role, you assist the coordination of community resilience, response and recovery programs with a focus on psychosocial support, working specifically with Indigenous communities. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that work? Yeah, look, thanks, Blanche. And, and I just want to acknowledge all of the um, speakers that have just spoken before before myself. And um, it, it does resonate. I was involved with the 2019 floods up in Townsville, where I reside. And, and a lot of the um, impacts in the response phase um, is very similar, um, even though every event's different. It's very similar to the, um, the impacts of psychosocial, um, physical, mental, emotional, um, unfortunate impacts that it has on a person or a, on a community. And I think when we talk about communities, um, there's communities within communities and, and that's where we need to recognize when we're trying to recover from an event, um, you know, one shoe doesn't fit everyone and we need to really take on board that um, we need to listen to what, you know, various um, individual groups, um, marginalized group, as James mentioned, um, and we talked about the vulnerable when, uh, you know, that's that's the the word that government use or, or disaster management um, space uses, vulnerable groups. And I say it's not the groups that are vulnerable, it's a system that's vulnerable. And it makes a lot of our marginalised groups, um, unfortunately, more marginalised in, in regards to gaining support. But um, look, back to back to my role in, in regards to supporting um, Indigenous communities, it's not so much Indigenous communities, it's um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples um, within a community. So it could be metropolitan areas, could be regional areas, rural, um, and also remote areas as well. And I think for us, it was about trying to um, create a bit of recognition, um, get inclusion, but also empowering our, our community, as in when I say community, our First Nations people to come to the table, bring their voice in the sense of what they need um, around recovery, uh, but in the sense of impacts of, of an event, um, a lot of the times we do focus on infrastructure, housing, which is, which is, which is more, uh, you know, definitely important. Um, but for a lot of our people um, in the intermediate sort of phases of recovery, um, we tend to start to look back on those cultural obligations that we have. So a lot of cultural heritage that may be lost um, through a bushfire or through a flood, or even through drought or, or a man-made sort of an event. Um, so we really have to consider those sorts of stuff um, that are impacting our, our healing journey um, for traditional owner groups or, or, or um, elders that are living within a community that, that have a really connection to country. Um, and, and then I heard about the relocation of um, community members having to move from one, maybe a suburb or a township to another for short to long-term periods. A lot of our people um, that have been moved um, since the time of you know, colonization and, and so forth, um, the removal of people off country has a very big impact again on losing a loss of knowledge, cultural knowledge, 
and a loss of that sort of um, connection to country as well. So we're trying to trying to make sure that um, you know governments and, and the disaster management space are considering when we have to relocate. Um, and Lismore is a great example. I do know that there was a uh, an indigenous community that that was pretty much flooded out, and they had to basically relocate um, all of that community. and And that's the stuff that um, you know I'm hoping that that community as in Lismore community will we'll consider about how do we rebuild to support that community to get back to where they need to be. It'll be a hard road, it's not gonna be easy and it could be a very long journey, but that's the stuff that we need to um, really have conversations around. Um, and I think for us in the recovery uh, space, supporting our, our people, our First Nations people, it was, um, you know, you'll hear of, uh, uh, the the fire and rescue teams going in and doing a bit of a rapid damage assessments and and all that sort of a stuff we asked about having cultural impact assessments included in that recovery um, assessments as well and and as I said we're one marginalized group so you know there's a whole range of considerations for other groups such as the disability sector the uh, senior sector the the um, uh, the low economic sector as well so I'm just talking on behalf of the First Nations group here, but there's a whole range of different groups that are, are definitely impacted and need that voice as well. Um, and then of course, equity, um, you know, everyone's at the different sort of levels of, of uh, resilience, uh, whether it be through that low socioeconomic or, or you're just situated on an unfortunate um, flood zone area um, compared to a high economic where you're pretty much um, safer than a, than a lot of the other communities. So they're the sorts of stuff that we tend to um, bring to the table and and getting people to understand our community is a bit more better than just saying, okay, we need to help out um, the Aboriginal groups over here because um, they're not coping and we need, what can we do from? If we start to build relationships as, as we do within communities, we'll start to know a bit more better around community needs and how community can lead their own journey around um, recovery and healing, um, but also that empowering oneself to um, step up, um, as we heard from Aidan, it's, it's not about government doing the job for us, people need to do it so they can feel like they're doing it for themselves as well. Um, within our space as well, Blanche, I just wanted to quickly mention before I stop, um, we, we formed a, a First Nations recovery group nationally, and that was actually Red Cross through the uh, bushfire um, uh, appeal. And we've now got a few uh, identified recovery officers in each, each area across the country to support um, First Nations people and communities, but also a community in general um, to try to recover. And that's a lot focused around psychosocial support. So uh, physically getting prepared and, and building that resilience, but more so about the mindfulness and the, the psychosocial part around how do we build better um, in our minds to prepare better. And because um, I think the mind's the most powerful part of ourselves. And if we can't you know, function properly with, with a bit more sanity around getting prepared for an event, um, we'll be in that same boat of very um, being, being risk sort of adverse to a lot of dangers and impacts from, from whatever event hits us in the next um, near future. So I'll leave it at that. Um, and, and yeah, we can go on and maybe ask questions later on. Yeah, thanks so much, Sam. And look, it's just such important work that you're doing. So thank you so much. And I, um, I really appreciate your point that vulnerability is, you know, not something inherent in people, but something made through social structures. And, you know, that's something that we can do to, to help 
Australia address climate justice better as well as just working on um, existing social issues. So thank you so much for that work. Um, Maddie, we're going to bring you into the conversation now. So Maddie, you co-founded Lismore Helping Hands, which came out of the 2017 floods and is now known as Resilient Lismore. And as part of that, you've been at the forefront of the community-led emergency and recovery efforts in the Northern Rivers for over five years now. So can you tell us a bit about your experiences and the role that communities can and do play in disaster recovery and resilience? Hi, Blanche, thank you. And um, thanks for what you just shared, Sam, that's really important. And also, um, I just want to acknowledge James and Jonti, who um, are also part of our community and the work that you've been doing as well. Um, I want to start by acknowledging that I'm on Widgeable Wyable land in Lismore. I'm 700 metres out of the flood zone. Um, and I feel, despite not having been flooded myself, I feel very directly affected by this event. It feels deeply personal, this climate catastrophe that has occurred in our region. And so what drives me is a love of place, a connection to my diverse community um, and a desire for climate action. Um, and so the things that I'm gonna share with you come from a deep love of place um, and a deep respect for our amazing community and its history of social and environmental justice. Um, and also recognizing that we choose to live in Lismore and the Northern Rivers for the same reasons that make us exceptionally vulnerable to climate related disasters like floods and fires and drought. We live alongside a river. We know that this is flood country. The Aboriginal people who lived here know that this is flood country. Um, and so I think that despite the devastation that has occurred here, it's a really amazing opportunity for us to listen to the land, to listen to First Nations people um, and to restore that connection to country and that connection to place that we love so dearly, even though it is threatening to our lives and our well-being. So as Blanche said, I, I was part of helping establish um, Lismore Helping Hands, which is now Resilient Lismore, five years ago. When, when that happened, I was 21 years old, straight out of uni. I had absolutely no idea about the disaster um, sector. I had no idea what goes on in those circumstances. I knew climate change was real and a problem that we needed to address. And I was just someone who knew how to use social media, who loved Lismore and who was watching from a town, I was living just out of town and I thought about what can I do? I'm watching the devastation unfold on, online and that's an experience that many people are having and have had from, from in Lismore and beyond is feeling really moved by the devastation and wanting to help. So I just wanted to do something and I helped create um, a Facebook group, which then led to a on-ground grassroots mobilization where we supported thousands of people for about a month um, in our community to get back on their feet after that flood. What I can say about this flood, um, despite the amazing efforts that have transpired on the ground and are still happening by um, both Resilient Lismore 
and the Koori Mail National Indigenous newspaper that's based out of Lismore. They're an incredible First Nations-led recovery effort whose core business is actually, you know, independent Indigenous media, but they happen to be positioned right next to the levee, right next to the river, and have stepped up in an amazing way to support our community in this time. Um, as well as those things happening and those being quite empowering opportunities for people to receive support and to help one another, the reality is that in that our normal community um, being able to help it itself was massively impacted by this disaster at a scale that was unprecedented. Um, and many, many more of our community leaders, I would call them, people who would step up to volunteer at a time like this were directly affected themselves. We know the flood footprint was hugely extended beyond what it was previously. So we are seeing um, the climate crisis unfolding in that unpredictable, more frequent, more severe way right here in Lismore, just as across the region in the North Coast. Um, so for me personally, when it came to remobilizing, um, my partner lost her house. I had several friends. There were eight people living at my house for a week and a half who were evacuees. And the skills that I would normally have, like the role of me uh, participating in community recovery, um, leveraging my experience in 2017, it was drastically reduced because we were dealing with survival we were dealing with a much greater impact. And um, despite that, there's quite a few people from Resilient Lismore who were able to step up and use their amazing diverse skills and do just whatever they could to, um, to set up. So a whole bunch of us went to the uni um, in Lismore and we were hosted there graciously and, and we were able to kind of set up our um, operations there and create a website. Um, and that website is um, www.floodhelpnr.com if people would like to go check out the ways that they can help. Um, and so we just, it snowballed from there and Resilient Lismore ended up uh, operating on ground alongside and in solidarity with the Koori Mail First Nations led recovery effort. So really amazingly, what we've seen now is more and more community members have stepped up to support each other. Um, there's the Trees Not Bombs Cafe that's been delivering food for people for free. Um, and it's really quite a diverse community-led response because it needs to be to reflect the amazing community that's full of diversity. Um, and so it's really fantastic, but we are going to need help from the whole of Australia in the weeks and months and years to come because people are very tired. And as Aidan said, um, we have had compound, compound flooding events and people are absolutely exhausted. Yeah, thank you so much, Maddie, for sharing. And again, thank you for all the fantastic work that you've been doing with the community. And um, it's a really great segue into my next question, which is for everybody. And um, I'm just gonna preface it by a little bit of context. So um, I'm a researcher and I look at the emotional impacts of climate change. So 
largely our research literature takes two distinct approaches to that. And on the one hand, we have research that explores the grief, loss and trauma that can occur after specific climate disasters that have happened in local communities like these floods. On the other hand, we have research exploring how people, especially young people, are anxious and worried about the anticipated future impacts of climate change. However, our research, uh, I think, is a bit behind the times and so far rarely considers both of these experiences, that emerging out of past lived experience and that oriented to the future at the same time. So my question for all of you, if you're interested in answering this one, is are you seeing future-oriented climate anxiety oh, in yeah. these disasters? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I, I can jump in and just sort of say that it's actually a really strong point of discussion in the community at the moment. And you see it where uh, people are fearful of moving back home now, or they want to move their homes to higher ground, or they want to move the town to higher ground, or they, they want to leave the Northern Rivers altogether. And you have people who are talking about quitting communities and neighbourhoods that they've been a part of for decades, and generations and generations. And it, so it's not just in the young anymore. And I think there's a real fear, I'd like to hear what everyone else has to say as well, that the Feb 28 flood is actually part of the, the new normal. And there's a lot of anger directed at uh, the government um, and the lack of, um, over the climate change inaction um, that's coming out as well. So it's, it's, it's not just an anxiety on a personal level, it's translating. And I think somebody asked a question in the chat a little while ago, but how do we change these emotions into political action? I think that's actually happening. I think that's happening. Thanks. John. Yeah, absolutely. Just building on what Jonti said, um, you know, as as a 27 year old, um, again, it is an all ages thing. But I'm absolutely terrified about what it is going to be living in this time in the years, decades to come. I have no idea what kind of quality of life. Um, you know, I stand in a relatively privileged position, let alone those with less access to support um, and let alone the younger generations who, you know, have not known a world. There are people who are five years old and younger who have not known a world without floods, without pandemic, without droughts. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's very scary. So I think we are going to have some incredible survivalists that come out of this, but it is very stressful. Mm. and we do need action and that's how we um we need strong and lasting action that is responsive and accountable just like you said at the start Blanche because that's going to be the main thing that mediates our distress moving forward yeah thank you Maddie um James did you want to jump in on that one yeah I was just going to say uh, um we've got school major schools um in Lismore that have been completely wiped out and so uh so Richmond River School, for instance, is now sharing with Lismore, Lismore High School. Um, I was talking to a friend who's a teacher there. He was saying that up to 10 students a week are leaving at the moment, like leaving the area, um, that, um, that students are like getting really scared of just like even having showers, um, uh, rain on roofs, of course. Um, so the impacts are very, very direct at the moment. And obviously, you know, their, their schoolwork's being really impacted. And, you know, there are, there are um, 
he, he was talking about a family of where eight are living in a caravan at the moment. This is the kind of conditions that some people are facing right now. It's really um, hard. Yeah, thank you, James. And um, Sam, I'd love to know if you've got a perspective on that um, around you know, how future-oriented worry might be affecting Indigenous people's experiences of these kinds of disasters. But there's also another question on Slido that I will ask you, and you can respond to either or both. And so this question is specifically for you, and it's, can you let us know if there are key things non-Aboriginal people can do to support our local Aboriginal communities? And I presume that specifically, you know, in the context of what we're talking about. Yeah, thanks, Blanche, for that that question. I think for for the first part, it's 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 exactly what most of our speakers have said. Um, the whole of our nation, or the whole world's actually, um, it's becoming a norm for anxiety to to set in when we've got some type of not a big event like the rain. I was down in Brisbane, I think only about three weeks ago to support the the southeast Queensland floods um, around uh, the the response and recovery, and then we had that second. Um, major event that unfortunately went down south again and um the amount of people that were really really um you know ringing through to to um emergency calls that we were getting all the data in it was just phenomenal so um at the moment up into up where i am we've got a big weather event just north of us and and you know i had a call from our head office to say do we need to start to prep up and send out um you know uh eois to our volunteers to get prepped up for uh a major event that may occur up in the far north Queensland area. So, you know, once once something happens, everyone starts to start, you know, starts to either plan ahead, um, but the anxiety is definitely there. I, th I think the second part of that question that you just asked me, Blanche, um, for us around having our, our non-Indigenous um, brothers and sisters um, supporting our communities, um, I think it's about making sure that we're, we're becoming more aware around um, the communities that you may be working in or living in, um, protocols around working with our mob, uh, but not just that, just building a relationship, go in, and we don't have to just go in um, around a preparedness time, around a disaster, an event, um, start to, to engage with your community um, groups and know about the different events that are happening. Once we start to learn and understand about, um, you know, what, what community is about and what's happening in your local area, um, I'm sure that you know you, the that community once when it, when the time is needed for um, support, there'll be a better way of just going in supporting supporting that group, understanding their their needs, and knowing how to actually um, work with that that community group, as in our First Nations people. Thanks so much, Sam. That's yeah, just brilliant insight. Um, Maddie, you've got something to chip in. Yeah, I just wanted to build off the back of what Sam shared. In Lismore specifically, there's a very clear invitation by um, groups like Koori Mail to walk with and alongside them. Um, and so when those calls are made, um, it's really important for us to listen to them um, at this time. I think that we've gotten into this problem because we got lost and because we've built this country on colonisation and one of the ways to heal country and to help address climate change is to really walk with and alongside First Nations mob just like um, like is being said and I just wanted to do another shout out to 
because this is about emotions and anxiety and well-being around climate and the floods, there's an amazing group uh, called the We Are Lee Mob who have created a collaborative Northern Rivers Community Healing Hub that started in the first week of the first flood. Um, and again, it has been a collaborative effort with everyone. There's been yarning circles and another really clear invitation for everyone, regardless of whether you're, whether you're Indigenous or not, to come and join and listen and yarn and, and benefit from First Nations ways of healing and um, doing things. So they're there and it's up to us to listen. Yeah, thank you, Maddie. Um, thanks everyone for the really incredible conversation so far. We are heading up towards seven o'clock. So I'm gonna give you uh, one last question for the evening. And it's a synthesis of a couple of different questions that have come in. Uh, so we've heard a lot about what individuals and communities are doing and they're doing amazing things. Nevertheless, people are tired and um, it's a lot to ask. So. We're in an election campaign um, and we've seen pretty little discussion around climate change or recent disasters in that. What would you like to see from our government uh, in terms of how best to support communities to prepare for, um, recover from and live with climate change? Uh, let's, let's go to Sam first and then we'll go to Jeanti if that's okay. Yeah, look, I, I, I won't comment on what we think government should change our, from a Red Cross perspective, but I think for us, it's around making sure that we recognise what community needs are and, and allowing community to lead their own journey in recovery. Um, a lot of the times we are seeing um, government try to lead that, that um, process and uh, we're missing out on a whole heap of um, really, really um, big information around the actual real needs of community and, and, and what they're asking for. So if we can actually step back and, and open our minungs or ears and take on, take on board those needs and turn them into action, I think it would go a long way. Yeah, I, I think uh, I, I want to add to, I think what Sam's saying and point that I think more success will come um, around climate change and recovery actions, for example, with the, the Flood um, Recovery Corporation for Northern New South Wales that's been announced for the seven local government areas. If we get away from the idea that they would consult with the community about what is needed, though what we actually need is for the community to be collaborated with. And we need First Nations people voices who know the floodplain, the, know the river, know what it's like to be here, that they are included in those conversations more than just on the side. They need to be front and, sever, front and central as part of this, I think. So yeah, I think it's gotta be around collaboration and people also need choice. They need to not be forced into just one single pathway. Mm, thank you, thanks, Jonti. Um, Maddie, do you wanna jump in there and then we'll pass to James to wrap up for the evening? Yeah, look, I'm gonna be quite bold um, because the time, the time of um, not talking about this is well and truly over. Um, we need bipartisan support. So all levels of government, regardless of what political leaning they have to withdraw their support for fossil fuel industries. We, we can no longer burn fossil fuel. Um, so that's coal and gas. We need to 
pivot and start to fund renewable energy and community-led alternatives that have us thriving and surviving into the future. We know that fossil fuels are driving these climate disasters that have devastated and wrecked our community, disrupted our sense of place and caused this collective grief. So we need the government across all levels to take serious and lasting action on climate change. Um, and absolutely centering the voices of First Nations people and the directly affected communities like Lismore on the North Coast. Thank you, Maddie. Thanks. And James. Yeah, all of the above, certainly. And um, I would say government to listen to young people, but not just to listen to young people, to actively consult and hear from young people. In, in very deliberative ways. We've got all the processes to do that now. Um, and, uh, you know, young people are the people who are going to have to live for the next, you know, 60 to 80 years. Um, uh, so, you know, we need to empower them and for government to listen to them. Yeah, thank you, James. And I echo what everyone has said. Uh, thank you so much, all of you, for being here tonight. It's obviously a really tough conversation and really challenging times for a lot of you. So I thank you immensely. Uh, I did want to wrap up just with one comment from the chat, which is from Peter Axtons, who said, uh, thanks to Aidan and daughter, Peter's mum and his brother were among his personal rescues. So I just wanted to acknowledge that. And Again, to emphasize just the incredible efforts that community members have been going to, to look after themselves and each other. So thank you again to our speakers, Aidan, Sam, Maddie, Shanti and James. Um, you've all made a real effort to be here tonight. I appreciate it so much and you've contributed so much to this conversation. Uh, a reminder for our listeners that if you need some resources to follow up with, uh, they're in the chat. Uh, so uh, it's been a great privilege to chair today's important conversation. Thank you all for tuning in and take care. And that was a flood of emotions Climate Anxiety and Trauma in Australia, brought to you by the University of Sydney. I hope you all enjoyed. Tune in next week.